Barry, first of all, um, welcome to Lyric. It's wonderful to um, have you here this afternoon. I want to go back about as far as we can go in many ways, right to the beginning, with you. And, and like so many musicians, virtuals and musicians, it could have been many other things. It might have been the clarinet, might have been the cello, turned out to be the piano. Can you remember exactly why that was the case? Yeah, well, it's great to talk to you, Paul, and be on Lyric FM. Great fan of the radio station. You, you know, I, I was very lucky growing up uh, in Belfast because I had the chance to play lots of different instruments, and I was really hooked on the clarinet, and I was principal clarinet at the City of Belfast Youth Orchestra. Uh, and I thought, this is going to be the thing for me, until a chance meeting of my father's uh, with an old friend of his uncovered the fact that there was an amazing piano teacher in town. I was about 16 and she was, uh, her name was Felicitas Lewinter and, she, Lewinter, and she had been a pupil of a pupil of Liszt. She was a pupil of Emil von Sauer, who was one of Liszt's last pupils in Weimar. Uh, and she was in town visiting her relatives. Her whole family had been Jewish uh, refugees from Austria when, when Hitler, when the, the Nazis came into Austria. And they had settled in the Republic of Ireland and also in, in the north. Uh, and, but Felicita, has, she'd gone back to London She'd gone to London and she's coming back to see her, her relatives. And I had um, two months, uh, July and August, when I was 16, uh, of lessons with her. And walking into her, her salon in Belfast was quite extraordinary because you felt you were coming, going back in time. You felt that this was, you were almost in the world of Liszt and the 19th century. Uh, and she really inspired me um, to, to think of becoming a pianist solely and, and not just uh, mucking around with the clarinet, the cello and various other instruments that I couldn't play very well. I can't imagine being principal of the youth orchestra uh, back in Belfast was really mucking around, but of course we're talking about a different standard and a different level here. And by this stage you were presumably totally committed. That relationship between teacher and pupil must be so central. And what's interesting about your career is, and you mentioned there, the uh, few degrees of separation between your teacher, one of your most influential teachers, and uh, Liszt. Another of your teachers, I think, um, had a practice that went back through two or three generations, well, it would be three, definitely, to uh, Beethoven. And it's interesting how that sort of uh, compacts the musical world and the legacy that's handed on. I think it was Cantaloupe had uh, his mother learnt everything that he learnt from his mother, who learnt from a teacher, Emily Deutscher, who was a pupil of Frédéric Chopin. Suddenly makes it very intimate and immediate. I think tradition and heritage, cultural heritage, is very, very important. Um, I think we're losing that a little bit now when some of the great teachers and pedagogues are passing away and and although there are some wonderful teachers, of course, around the world who, who do a wonderful job, I think we're losing that. We're, we're, we're that 19th century, late 18th century, all of 19th century, early 20th century piano schools. Um, the, the the characteristics and the strength of of that conviction, f and 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 they were also different when you consider the French school, the Italian school, the Russian school, the English school even. Um, they were so different, but they were strong and they had strong identities. What 
I think is amazing is when you hear, when I heard Felicitas speak to me about von Zauer, but also she spoke about other Liszt pupils that she had heard play, like uh, Josephi and Freetime. And she spoke specifically about Freetime. Art of Freetime had an amazing sound of the piano, a sound she'd never heard anybody else emulate. Um, it was a silken legato. It was it was like a string orchestra, how he played the piano, she said. Uh, and she said, that's what you should strive for, is to imitate, not to imitate, but to emulate or to um, create the illusion on the piano of, of being a string orchestra. Uh, and this was really important because this opened my eyes and my imagination to something which I'd never even thought about before. Uh, and she she was very strong and very... She was hard on me, uh, and that was great. And I, I would see her from time to time in London. And I went to London to the Royal College, and I had a great teacher there, John Barstow. Uh, but I still always went back to Felicitas. It's uh, that first influence that is so important, or at the most influential stage. And presumably she's someone also who turned the practice of practice into an inspired happening as opposed to a slog, which is so important for a young musician because so much of your time as a young and a very young person must have been immersed in just that. Yeah, that's a really important point that um, when you practice, uh, certainly she instilled this in me, is practice is not about practicing. Practice is always about making music. You must never just play it mechanically. Uh, and uh, even Horowitz said that and people would say, how did you learn your amazing technique? He said, I just played lots of pieces. And the, the, because you can't divorce technically what you do at the piano, uh, the, the mechanical nature of it, you know, what you do to strengthen your fingers and how to play fast and octaves and everything. You can't divorce that from music because then there's a disconnect. There must always be a connect between your emotions and your intelligence and your brain power. Uh, with your fingers, which then produce music. If there is a, a break in that link, it just doesn't work. One of the great pianists of all times, I think, was Benjamin Britten, who, when he played uh, Schubert Lieder with various singers such as Fischer Dieskau, you've you heard that complete unbroken link from his brain through his heart to the fingers and then to the instrument and then to the music. Um, and that's always what you had to emulate. And she... Felicitas really instilled that in me. And then, of course, later when I studied with Maria Corcio, who had been a pupil of Schnabel. Is this, this is in London? Or? This is in London. I studied with her privately and also then in Paris. And she was very much for the same thing, but also she instilled in me to have integrity and to always use the score as to be God, the Bible, or whatever you want to call it, the Koran. It should always be the most important things to score. And then imagine what the composer was wanting. And you must never deviate from that. And so this the level of integrity that she had, uh, on the one hand, you could think that's quite a straight jacket. And for a lot of people, it didn't work because they felt too controlled, um, not by Maria, but by the, the, the notion of being such a kind of... Uh, unkindly a slave to the score in, the, uh, in, in a good way, you know, to be a real aficionado and a partner of the score. Uh, but that really made a huge impact on me. So these two very important uh, teachers were, they, they changed things for me. And then I went on and I, I stayed in Paris for master classes with Yevgeny Malinin, who told, taught me so much about Russian school. And this was the beginning of your 
I won't read that, what has been really since a lifelong relationship with that city which you love. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so lucky and honoured to have that connection, um, not just because of the competition, but because of Yevgeny and of what he taught me. When he sat at the piano, it, was like, it sounded like an organ. It hadn't, the piano had no decay, it seemed to me, because he had an amazing sound, very deep sound, very legato sound. So I learned another thing about sound from a different angle. And so I've been very fortunate with all, all my teachers. And, and of course, you learn. I mean, I never stop learning. A, a, a real artist doesn't stop learning. You learn from other people. You learn from life. You learn from and the birds singing. Uh, and clearly you were learning fast. Um, if we move on a few years and you're out of college now and on into that very demanding world that it seems every young musician has to face at some time of competition, in your case, at a very high level. In 1985, you gain great uh, recognition at the Van Cliburn and then, of course, on to 86. And this amazing thing that happened. Winning in Russia, in Moscow, at that time, it's very interesting what you have to say about it. And, uh, you know, you've always been much happier, I would say, to let the music speak. You don't talk a lot about it. And I know this from doing the research. There's not that much that I've actually seen, certainly in print, about what you've said. On my, one of the things that has stayed with me, one of the things that I remembered, is that you said at one stage, winning the Tchaikovsky International Piano Competition back in 1986 was both frightening and wonderful. What exactly did you mean? Um, at that time, it was the, the last stages, the last years of the Soviet Union, and Gorbachev was in power, and he came to the prize winners' concerts, and um, it was an amazing time. The following of the the public, and it was such that um, I needed military escorts to move around the city. It was, they were so in love with their favourite musicians. Um, so that was something that was overwhelming, also playing in the in the hall in the Tchaikovsky in the grand the the Bolshoi Zal of the Tchaikovsky Conservatory, um, where you know that premieres of Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, all the great you know symphonists they were all there and the great pianists Richter and Gilles, everybody. That was another thing, and then you see the jury you know twenty two twenty four people ranged there in front of you, and here's me this little kind of Belfast guy coming in and thinking. Well, I'm just going to just play the music because there's no way that I'll get anywhere with this. Uh, and I just played, and I played well the first round. Um, so anyway, I went on, and I was very fortunate. I, I got the first prize. Um, at that moment, everything changed because um, in those days, the, the the competition didn't give you... It gave you a little bit of money, 2,000 rubles, which you couldn't take out of the country because it was non-exchange. So it took me three hours to try and spend that money in 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 Red Square in the department store Goom. Uh, and then when I came back... You remember what you bought? <laughs> yeah, I bought a lot of photographic stuff and a lot of nonsense. Uh, but yes, it, it was frightening because immediately um, I was... It was an amazing, heady time, you know, to be invited all over the world and to be able to play with such great conductors and have a recording contract almost immediately with RCA Red Seal. Um, so that was... Frightening and a challenge, but also, of course, incredible, because that's what I want to do. I also wondered, was there a sense to, because it was Moscow and at that time when things were not so open, not so interchangeable in the way that they would be today for young musicians, was there even more of a feeling, in some ways, 
it was not called the Tchaikovsky International Piano Competition for nothing, that you were sort of beating the Russians at their own game? It was never... I never felt that. There was never any sense that um, the Russians were in any way perturbed by that. So what I mean is in a sense of their inhabiting that repertoire particularly. Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff and the like, you know. Mm. Is well, there a special understanding there? Well, there was a precedent because von Klarwin had won in it yes. in 58 and um, that was uh, an amazing achievement and an amazing ap- happening. Um, but they, they came to me and they said that you play like a Russian and we don't know why. And I said, well, I'm very flattered because I love this music and I'm glad you think that I'm playing it the correct way. Um, and they they said there must be something in the soul of the Irish person, the Celt, something which is similar to the to the Russian soul. I said maybe there is. And then I would crack a joke, you know, flippantly that John Field, our great piano composer in the nineteenth century, had taught a whole generation of Russian musicians, including Glinka. So I said, maybe it's because we taught you how to play the piano. <laughs> of course. There you go, you've totally answered my question. <laughs> I revealed the um, secret. You know, you've come to something that uh, uh, quite naturally that, that I was very interested to ask you. Um, you explained there how you've been both sides of the competitive fence, both as very successfully a competitor and a judge as well. One of the things that's always um, fascinated me about this field is the need for young musicians making their way to make a mark at competition and one of the things that's sort of, I'm not saying disturbing is too rare but it's difficult I think for a lot of us to appreciate the fine lines here insofar as in sport for example competition is absolutely fundamental there's a winner and a loser it's that simple in an artistic field that line is blurred, or it must be by necessity. It's far more subjective than objective, obviously. And I wondered, have you ever found that difficult, as a judge particularly, to know exactly what's right, or do you just know instinctively? I am not a fan of competitions. Mm. I have to say I owe a lot to my my luck in the Tchaikovsky, but um, I I've always turned down being on juries. I just don't feel I don't feel comfortable. I don't want if I hear somebody who's really special, and then they don't get through, I just don't want to be there. So I'd prefer not to do them. Valery Gergiev made a strong case to a group of us, you know, some wonderful pianists. He said, "I want this to be about real performers listening to." wonderful young performers and he sold it brilliantly and so I went uh, and we were very fortunate to have an, an amazing first prize winner Daniel Trifonov um, but it, it's 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 a torturous pro- I mean there were several pianists that I thought should have got through and got a prize and uh, I've tried to follow their careers from afar and, and help them when I can um, so it's very frustrating uh, and I know it's subjective. Arthur Rubinstein, the great pianist, when he was on a jury, he would give people either 0 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 because you can either play the piano or you can't because he thought once you can play the piano, that's what counts, and then you can't compare. So, you know, if it's like, you know, it's comparing different uh, fruits like an apple and a pear. You can't. They're both beautiful. 
and so that that's the weakness but it's you know it's part i think it's useful if the the young competitor the young artist can use it as a as a way of kind of strengthening their resolve strengthening their artistry in a very difficult circumstance because it's not a real concert it's a, more of a microscope it's more of a laboratory and so um if they can use that to in a positive way i think that's great i think it's of course it's it's, it's a shop window it's a, it's a window on what's going on in the young talent at that time in the world so that's fascinating for the media fascinating for the public for the for the listener so there there's some really good things about it um but there there are a lot of um negative things some young musicians they travel around they're called competition tourists and they they're more interested in well we're all interested in earning some money but they're more interested in earning the money and getting the the prizes than actually making music and that's the the underbelly of of what can happen in competitions i think if you use it in the correct way it can be enormously beneficial of course if you win that's the best uh, but it's it's a it's a mixed bag for me competitions i wanted to talk about tchaikovsky himself now when uh, we look at your career one of the centrifugal forces is that uh, composer in terms of your repertoire obviously i think i'm right in saying that you performed the piano concerto number no. 1 for the very first time at the age of 17 with the Ulster Orchestra. Is that right? No, uh, I played with the Belfast Youth Orchestra. I played Schumann Concerto and I played Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto uh, when I was 17. Um, the orchestra were very understanding and the, the director of the orchestra then, Leonard Pugh, he said, whatever you want to play, just let's do it. So that's the first time I did Rachmaninoff Three. You know, I was 20, 19, I think, in London I did Tchaikovsky one of the first time. But, um, you know, it, it's these, these pieces are, like all pieces of music, they, you live with them for a very long time and they change and evolve. And, um, and I remember being incredibly... <laughs> I remember some of the musicians in the orchestra saying, are you sure you want to do Rachmaninoff 3? Isn't that really difficult? I said, yes, it is very difficult, but everything's very difficult, <laughs> you know. I've got to do it once sometimes. It's supposed to be the most difficult of them all, the most technically difficult. That's what they tell lay people at any rate. Is that true? Uh, Rachmaninoff is not as difficult as some Russian composers, certainly as Tchaikovsky, because it's very pianistic. It's written really for a pianist. Everything sits beautifully under the hand. And so while there are a lot of notes, uh, the main difficulty, like all music, is actually really making the music mean something, trying to find the essence. I think it was Horowitz who said that um, he wished that that was a work he'd mastered while still a student and too young to know fear. (laughs) (laughs) 